Hi, this is Linda McGlasson with BankInfoSecurity.com, and today we're speaking with Gary McGraw, Ph.D., Chief Technical Officer at Sigil. Dr. McGraw is a world authority on software security and is author of six best-selling books, including Software Security, Building Security In. Hello, Gary. Hi, Linda. We'll get right to the questions. Um, being that you've been involved in info security for, I want to say, more than 15 years? I'd say 11. 11. Okay. <laughs> Don't want to make it you seems, too old. It seems like 1,100, but Some I days. think 11 is about right. What are your thoughts on the state of information security in general? I'm kind of optimistic about um, some of the progress we've made in the last five years. And mostly that has to do with turning away from the old reactive approach to security that involved trying to put barriers between bad guys and stuff, like firewalls or antivirus mechanisms or intrusion detection systems, and instead beginning to pay attention to building security into our systems in the first place so that they're not riddled full of security vulnerabilities. And I think we've made a lot of progress in that area, so, so I'm optimistic that we're beginning to approach the problem in the right way. On that same question, uh, are you also optimistic on the state of info security in the banking industry? Well, sure. I mean, uh, I guess you wouldn't be surprised to know, or your listeners wouldn't be surprised to know, that many times it's the financial vertical, and the banking industry in particular, that is leading the adoption and application of various security technologies. And the reason for that is that obviously banks have something really tangible to lose, money. <laughs> and they also have something even more important that they can lose, which is reputation among their customers. And so for those reasons, you find people in the banking industry have a pretty kind of intuitive grasp of risk management and the notion of trying to figure out how to balance things out right when they're thinking about security versus actually being a bank. And, and so um, when it comes time to, to talk about building software properly, the kind of thing that I like to do, uh, banks are really open to that. And in fact, they've, they've been knocking down our door trying to get us to help them set up software security programs and integrate best practices into their software development lifecycle. I think the one thing that might surprise some of your listeners is that many banks are really very huge software shops. <laughs> and if you go to, say, large investment banks in New York, you find that they have, all, you know, 8,000 developers in some of these banks. You go, my gosh, you know, I thought you were a bank, but it turns out you're a software company. So software security is taking on a lot of uh, prominence because of that. Well, that's with the bigger banks, but some of the smaller and mid-sized banks um, they they tend to use off-the-shelf software. Um, what's your take on uh, their use of third-party vendors and off-the-shelf software and their dependence on them without, you know, going into a lot of detail, but... Yeah. Oh, I know, I know a fair amount about some of this banking software because of my involvement in a few cases as an expert witness. <laughs> So I have to skirt carefully uh, when I'm talking about this, this issue. But um, for the most part, the vendors of 
banking software that's off the shelf for smaller or mid-sized banks do also understand the importance of security. And they're trying hard to do a decent job with software security. The main thing is that when somebody in a bank like that decides to buy that off-the-shelf software, they really should seek um, third-party validation or an assessment of what the real security posture of that software is from experts. They shouldn't just take the vendor's word for it. Um, and so uh, you can hire a consulting firm to do something like that. We do it at Digital, but there are many other firms that will, that will help with that as well so that you can get a real handle on the risks that come with using that off-the-shelf software. Um, you know, that said, I, I think that there's been improvement in that body of software, too, in the last two or three years, um, mostly under pressure from the law and from some of these lawsuits that I was alluding to at the beginning of this answer. Okay. Um, going on to a, a different area, pervasive computing. Can you explain it to our listeners uh, yeah, in lay terms? Sure. This is kind of a, a research subject, but the, the notion is that computers get into everything, like your clothes and your light switch and your car, and, you know, it's not just your computer that you're using to do computation. And, in fact, there are lots more computers around you today than you might be aware of, and they're sort of behind the scenes doing things like running the electrical power grid um, and doing things like, you know, being your cell phone. Turns out that's a little computer. Or running the fuel injector in your car. Most modern cars have maybe 12 to 1,500 computers in them now doing the automotive control. The notion of having computers everywhere is great because computers and software lend us lots of flexibility to build cool new products and change them on the fly and have them do really kind of mind-bogglingly great stuff. But along with that great comes a fair amount of risk, um, especially if you think about what I call the trinity of trouble, um, that is connectivity, everything connected to the network, um, extensibility, and that's the big one that I think is important to understand in terms of uh, this ubiquitous computing, um, and then um, I think what the third one is, connectivity, uh, complexity. You know, those are the three things that make software security a real challenge and a fun thing to work on. And extensibility is probably the one that is most relevant to ubiquitous computing or pervasive computing. Um, and I think what we'll find is that as these computers get around everywhere, we're going to have to start thinking about new things like the fact that computers know where we are. You know, your cell phone could actually be a tracking device. Um, and you can use that for business reasons, or you could use that for a, attack reasons as a bad guy. So we need to think through the implications of what it means when computers are everywhere. That'll be interesting in the next 10 years, watching how that unfolds. Um, what, what will be the impact, in your view, on security and user privacy of uh, the Trusted Computing Initiative? Oh, wow. So the, the idea of trusted computing is really pretty simple, if you think about it. You know, the computer... Um, is running lots of software. And so you can say, how can you trust the software? Well, you sort of have to trust the hardware. And then you say, well, why should you trust the software? Why should this, the hardware, um, the software trust the hardware? And there, there really is no answer right now. And so if you, if you try to look for where does trust come from, 
it turns out that it kind of goes with this joke, but it's turtles all the way down. You know, there is no bottom-most trust thing. The idea behind trusted computing um, or, tr- or trustworthy computing is, is to get uh, a, a hardware coprocessor in everybody's PC so that you can boot trust. That would be very, very helpful for a lot of things. You know, we'd be able to validate that the software that says it's some sort of software actually is using cryptographic um, methods, for example. Um, we could do things like, you know, build real digital rights management envelopes. Um, but what you trade off there is that that coprocessor no longer really belongs to you, the owner of the computer. It really belongs to Intel or Microsoft or you know, some manufacturer who has actually put that coprocessor in your system. And the idea is then that that thing watches you and watches what you do and allows things and doesn't allow other things. And a lot of people are worried about that from a privacy perspective and from a computing freedom perspective. And in fact, you know, the, the, the cyberpunks are completely opposed to this for just that reason. And it, it points out this really delicate, critical trade-off that has always been involved in security. How do I trade off privacy and security? I want to be make sure that that website knows who I am, you know, authenticates me properly, but I also want to be anonymous. Well, those two things don't balance out real well. You know, which one do you really want? And so questions like that remain to be answered as we look at these modern systems. Okay. Um, going back to your book, Software Security, Building It In, Dan Gear wrote in his foreword uh, that there is a new Windows virus every four hours, and about 15% of all desktops are running some sort of malware, and embedded systems outnumber desktops by one, two orders of magnitude. Shows the reasons for better security. So just how wide is the gap between those who have security and those who don't? Well, I, I think that software security is a fairly new field. And as, as I said before, I'm optimistic about the progress that we've made, but certainly there is lots and lots of room to grow. Microsoft has been spending lots and lots of effort trying to adopt software security best practices. They even have their own software security guru, Mike Howard, who's quite a good guy. Um, trying to lead the program over there. And so, like many banks, Microsoft itself is trying to figure out how to do a better job so that they don't have these um, viruses promulgating the earth all the time. I, I think it's interesting that you mentioned Dan's, um, Dan's foreword uh, to, to my book because my favorite sentence in the book is actually a, a sentence that Dan wrote. So I'll read that to you. It's on uh, one of the early pages. It says, as, doc- as Dr. McGraw reminds us, Breaking something is easier than designing something that cannot be broken. Though I personally prefer Sam Rayburn's earthy formulation, viz, any jackass can kick down a barn, but it takes a good carpenter to build one. And so I think that sort of says it all from the perspective of, you know, it's easy for people to break a system. If you hire some hacker boys to do a pen test, they'll probably be successful. But really what we need to do is build better barns, you know, not run around knocking barns down um, just to say that we can. And so I think we have to pay more attention to things like software security and things like building security in 
Um, or we're just going to be stuck with a computer security problem that you know gets bigger and bigger and more and more untenable. Um, in your previous answer, you mentioned Microsoft. Um, what's your opinion of the uh, new operating system, Vista? Vista. <laughs> well, I'd have to ask my son, Jack, actually. He's very excited about all new operating systems, including Vista. Um, I think that Microsoft is trying hard to build a next-generation operating system that is not a security disaster. And in fact, given their track record, you know, they did a, a pretty good job um, getting things better with XP Service Pack 2 than, uh, than when XP first came out. So what usually happens with Microsoft is they'll release a gigantic thing, and then it takes some time for the kinks to get uh, worked out. And I would not be surprised if that were the case with Vista as well. So my own personal um, view as a technologist would be, well, let's wait around until the early adopters have all died off, and then let's probably use it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That said, what I have sitting on my desk is an Apple MacBook Pro, which I use, um, and I run parallels when I need to have Microsoft software running. Um, I actually run XP Service Pack 2 in a virtual machine on top of my Mac. Very cool. So that's how I do computation. Okay. Um, your, your podcast, The Silver Bullet, is well known for its uh, incisive interviews. What's coming up on it? Which one is your favorite? And where may our audience find your podcast? Oh, boy. So I have to pick favorites. That's going to be a toughie. Um, it, it's a lot of fun because the idea behind the podcast is that, you know, I interview other security gurus and ask them questions that are surprising, you know, which is a lot of fun. I never tell those, anybody the questions in advance. Um, the one that's coming up now, I was just editing the interview of a podcast that's released with John Stewart, who's the CSO of Cisco and a good friend of mine. And what we do is we'll take a, a transcript of the podcast and take pieces of that and publish it in IEEE Security and Privacy Magazine. So that's going to be released in the January-February issue of that magazine. Meanwhile, you can get that podcast um, at the Silver Bullet website, which is www.digital.com slash silverbullet, all one word. Now, when it comes to favorites, that's a really good question. Um, I think the one of my favorites is the one that I did with Bruce Schneier that was released in December, because Bruce is, you know, quite a good spokesmodel for computer security, and he has a lot of great stories and tons of experience, and he knows how to relate security to people who may not be everyday security people. So I, I got a kick out of doing that one with Bruce. He, he answers the ma, ma and pa information security questions. Yeah, and, and it's very important that we have people to do that who are also incredibly knowledgeable and able to get those points across in um, simple enough terms that, that people can understand it. Okay. Um, moving on, uh, your take on Google's code search and, oh, yes. and how will this impact banks with poor or holy software or an <laughs> inadequate patching routine. You know, there's a new Google thing that might be worth mentioning. Um, just over the, the Christmas, New Year's um, break, Hanukkah break, there was uh, a big problem discovered in the way Gmail works, and it turns out that if you have your Gmail session going 
while you go to a malicious website, they can suck all of the contacts out of your Google Mail pile, um, and, and including your own identity and your password um, at Gmail. And that's a huge problem. <laughs> yeah, everybody's on Gmail. Everybody's on Gmail. And if you think about it, many of the banks might have employees who have a Gmail account, and they use that through their web browser at work. And so the question is, what happens if they're susceptible to these sorts of phishing attacks like that, where you get a piece of malicious code that's based on JavaScript and based on calling, you know, one of these JSON objects, and and and, uh, and, and people are finding out information they shouldn't find out. So I, I think that that what you see with this sort of thing is a bellwether of what's to come when we begin to adopt service-oriented architectures or SOA when we begin to really talk about Web 2.0 and what does that mean for small or medium-sized banks? Because you know a lot of this off-the-shelf software that you were talking about before is going to be web services related. And, and so um, as we begin to adopt these new architectures, we have to think very carefully about that problem in the Trinity of Trouble, that extensibility problem. The notion that we're using JavaScript um, that means that it's pretty straightforward and simple and easy to extend, but it also means that um, it's also easy for other people to extend in surprising ways we may not have anticipated. So, uh, you know, that's, that's kind of an interesting thing. Now, getting back to the actual question that you asked me, right. Google, Google also has this, um, this uh, code search capability, um, and they actually copied the idea from um, a little website called Buggle in the beginning. And the notion was to use web spiders to look around for source code um, on the net instead of just spidering up website URLs. And of course, um, you can use that to find little code snippets on the net, uh, including bugs. So you can actually use it to search for, say, buffer overflow problems in somebody's source code and then find out whether or not some bank or some other target has um, problems in the source code that they accidentally posted on their website. So there's a real simple answer to this, and that is don't publish your code publicly on your website. <laughs> um, so what happens is people do that either accidentally or through silliness or poor configuration control or whatever. So that's the number one thing you ought to do. Um, and then there's kind of a funny aspect of it, too, because as soon as the code searching capability came out, of course, we started searching for silly things around here. And it turns out that developers actually curse in their source code a lot more often than you would expect in, in comments. And so you can search for bad words, just like you used to do in sixth grade with a dictionary. And, and uh, it's surprising what, what kind of hilarious comments people have in their code. So you have to make sure that your developers are not putting uh, co comments like that in your code. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty funny. I, it's true. Um, this is coming from uh, a quote or a line in your book, mm -hmm. who or what is the InfoSec boogeyman? <laughs> well, let me tell you where that came from. So I hang out with software developers more than I hang out with security people, as you probably know. And many security people scare the bejesus out of developers because developers work very hard to build a system. And then right before it's supposed to ship, these security guys come along with sticks and beat them about the face and neck, saying, your software is bad, it's insecure, and we can't put it up. Which makes the developers 
really sad and sort of surprised. And, and it also makes them want to avoid the InfoSec people. So whenever they see the security people coming down the hall, they hide under their desk or around the corner. They just run away. You know, usually there's this wave of developers running in front of security guys coming down the hall. And, and that's the InfoSec boogeyman. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so what we have to do is break down those barriers between people with good, deep security knowledge and people who are building our systems, these developers. And that's what my work is all about. And in fact, Software Security is a book that's better suited for developers and architects and people in, involved in building software than it is for um, your classic security guy. Okay. Um, wrapping up, uh, do you have any final parting advice to uh, those InfoSec practitioners, CISOs, risk management officers, and others uh, who are fighting the battle uh, at financial institutions everywhere in the U.S.? Yeah, I do, actually. When it comes to software security in particular, make sure that whatever help you get, whatever vendors you choose to say, training or whatever software you buy um, is built by people who are software people or is delivered by people who are software people. Because what I've found is that there are a number of very good security types who are hanging up shingles today saying, we do code review or we will give your developers security training. And though these guys are very knowledgeable when it comes to network security, they really don't know that much about software, and they lose the developers right off the bat because, you know, developers are sort of arrogant and <laughs> very skeptical, uh, cynical guys, and, and they don't want to listen to some dumb security guys, how they would put it. So the answer to that is to bow to their silliness and allow um, and, and find some software guys that you can put in front of them that actually deeply understand security as well. And so. Part of my business is trying to figure out how to grow people like that, how to make new software security people, and how to address those sorts of needs for training from very deeply experienced software guys that also know something about security, for example, or code review by people who actually write code, that sort of thing. So I'd say, you know, watch out for security people masquerading as software security people is my last piece of advice. Okay. Well, Gary... Uh, thank you so much for being a part of uh, our podcast series, and we'll look to hear from more from you in the future. Thanks a lot, Lynn. It's been fun. All right.